This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure today of welcoming to the podcast um, Dr. Jennifer uh, Ortegren, who is uh, Associate Professor at uh, Middlebury College. We'll be talking about a brand new OUP publication called Middle Class Dharma, Gender, Aspiration, and the Making of Contemporary Hinduism. Uh, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, You know, we've had We've had so many email exchanges, and of course, I read your book, and it's this may be one of our first actual conversations for the podcast. Yeah, it is for the podcast. That's right. Was it the first? Fascinating. So, um, what got you down this this line of research? How did this come about for you? This interest. Yeah, I you know I sent this to you in an email this morning. I was thinking like how far back to take an answer to this question. Um, I would say that I got interested in the study of women and religion even as an undergraduate student. Um, my undergraduate advisor was a, a feminist theologian, so the question of women and religion always interested me. And then when I was in my master's program uh, doing an MTS at Harvard Divinity School. Then I was introduced to women in Hinduism, um, and especially when I, I was introduced to the work of, say, Anne Gold and Gloria Raheja and listening to Heron's words and thinking about women's subversive speech and thinking about the possibilities for women's you know, subversive uh, uh, speech and songs and the ways, the kind of flexibility that exists um, within Hinduism and the, cre- the possibilities for power and agency that that creates for women in Hinduism was interesting to me because I think there's a flexibility there that exists in all traditions, but in unique ways in Hinduism. Um, so I was always interested in that question. Um, and then when I thought that I wanted to pursue something like that, um, again, Anonius well, suggested very wisely um, that I should go to India <laughs> before I decided that I was going to pursue a career in the study of Hinduism, um, make sure that I liked it. Uh, and so uh, she suggested that I could volunteer for a NGO uh, and even suggested um, an NGO in Udaipur, which is where I do my research in Rajasthan and uh, in Northwest India. Um, so I picked an NGO there called Seva Mandir. Uh, it's really well known throughout India uh, internationally. Um, they had a women and children's development unit. And also at the time, they housed their volunteers for free, which was really uh, important for me. Um, And so when I was there uh, doing uh, projects um, that took us out into the village uh, outside of Udaipur and in Rajasthan, um, I think about this one moment that really kind of ultimately motivated what this project became, but I was spending time, we had gone up to meet with a women's self-help group, um, and I was doing this project with another American woman who was of Indian heritage and spoke Hindi, so was doing all the kind of work for it, the translation. 
Um, and so we're just sitting around waiting and I asked her to ask the woman that we were with, who was the head of that women's self-help group. I just asked them, can you ask her what song she sings about Sita? I was interested in this thing about women's kind of Sitayanas. Uh, and the woman responded and said, we don't sing about Sita. She belongs to wealthy women in the city. And then proceeded to tell the story of kind of a local you know, princess that had uh, a similar kind of story. But I got interested in this question of, the, well, then if you move to the city, would you start to sing about Sita? And there was even, you know, examples of women like that working for the NGO. We also worked with women who had moved to towns or to the city, um, you know, and were kind of upwardly mobile, becoming middle-class women, but moved seamlessly back into these rural spaces with their natal families, et cetera. And so I was thinking about what their lives were like and motivated by this question of when you move to the village, to the city, how does that change women's lives and how does it change women's religious lives? Um, so that's the question that initially motivated the research and thinking about this kind of class mobility. Um, as women become middle class, what kind of changes does that bring for them? So what would you, what does the book argue? What What is your hopeful takeaway? Right. So the the argument that I make then in analyzing the experience of um, upward mobility among um, Hindu women in one particular neighborhood, I focus mostly on one neighborhood in Udaipur, um, I get in the ways in which women, through this kind of upward mobility, their lives change. And I argue that we can understand their experience of class and class identity as a category of dharma. I draw on the Hindu conception of dharma um, as a kind of moral identity for understanding what does it mean to become middle class. And for me, that's a way of pointing out how becoming middle class um, is a religious process. And by that, that I mean it becomes a process of having to develop a different kind of selfhood, a different kind of identity, a different understanding of what it means to be a person, to be a woman, and to be a Hindu. Um, and that therefore, we can understand class itself as a uh, religious identity and the process of becoming middle class as a religious process. So the takeaway that I wanted to pull out from that is that becoming middle class is not simply a socioeconomic process. It's this really much more complicated process that can be really exciting but also really, really difficult, and for reasons that are not just financial. Um, but I also want us to think about how the category of religion helps us think not only about that experience, but also how that experience of middle classes helps us rethink the category of religion um, as being more expansive than just what you believe, for example. So regarding the notion that class is um, a facet of implicated in this notion of dharma, is that instinctive to most? Is that provocative? Well, I think that, well, it depends on who you ask. I don't think it's overly provocative. I think to think about dharma, uh, dharma is an incredibly expansive category, right? That uh, there's no one definition of what dharma is. Um, it operates at a kind of ontological on a normative level. It's a very complicated concept. So I think the idea of adding more into dharma is itself not complicated and not problematic. It's itself is an expansive category. Um, I think what, what I think is interesting and helpful about it in my work, I'm trying to show the ways in which women in their everyday lives, these decisions that they make about what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat, are you going to send your daughters to college? Or if you send them to college, are you going to let them work outside of the home? After they get married, how are you going to arrange their marriage? How much stay will they have? But these kinds of decisions um, are part and parcel of religion and part and parcel of dharma. Um, so I think that that what part, one of the things that I want to argue and I want to draw out in the book is women's critical role in shaping what is Denmark for our community. What is appropriate? What is the, how is a community supposed to behave? Who can you be? Who should you be? What you should you to do? Women's lives and women's everyday practices and these kinds of conversations, I want to suggest have actually always been central to that. 
So that may feel provocative in the sense that I think often scholars of Hinduism, when we think or talk about dharma, we're thinking about classical texts, right? We're thinking about shastras. We're thinking about the lives of men um, because women aren't in the text. But I don't think it's actually overly provocative. I don't think what I'm showing is something new. I just think that there's a way to see um, the kind of change that's happening in contemporary India for these women. I mean, that's happening in one generation. Um, you know, when you have mothers who've never gone to school and they have daughters who are college educated and granddaughters who are fluent in English and are going to be college educated and working outside the home in professional capacities, that's a lot of change really, really quickly. So I just think that paying attention to contemporary class lets us see how women are central to the construction of dharmic norms within a given community in ways that I suspect have always been true, but just didn't have an ethnographic window into it in the same way. Um, so I don't think it's going to be overly provocative. I hope that it's um, provocative in the sense um, that we start to broaden who we think about and who we talk about when we're talking about what is dharma, who constructs dharma, that we think about these non-literate women kind of teasing each other across their doorsteps or on the rooftops, that these are people who are fundamentally constructing dharma for themselves. So, you know. so given that dharma is this ancient, ancient term that's really uh, never fallen out of vogue. It's been used for so long. It has these various connotations, uh, law, duty, uh, um, 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 moral order, et cetera, et cetera. Would it be fair to say that in this context, your usage of dharma um, has more the hue of social dharma, social duty, or are you using it, uh, or, or, or rather, than, let me ask an open-ended question. How are you using the term dharma in this context? <laughs> yeah, so you're right. So dharma, I in my work draw on um, the way that Barbara Holdridge frames this, of dharma having this kind of ontological sense of being kind of this cosmic moral order, and then this more normative sense that might be morality or ethics, sometimes it's translated as religion, but also law and duty, right, the, that individuals have to help uphold that more, that that order cosmic order um, at the in terms of the family and, and the community, right? So uh, I actually want to draw on dharma as both of those. So I'm looking in the everyday ways in which women are doing these kinds of um, social practices, right? I'm looking at the social level. But what I think is interesting and valuable and powerful about the concept of dharma is the way that it's always intrinsically linked to the cosmic, right? That it has these ontological notions. And what that means is that it imbues your everyday practices. What do you eat, right? What do you wear? Those practices, dharma lets us see how they are imbued with this much more, this much greater kind of ontological resonance, um, which is also a way to think about, well, what is religion, right? This relationship between the normative and the ontological. So, and I should say, I say this in the book, but, you know, the women with whom I was working never used the word dharma. Um, I heard it uh, maybe a few times to say like, oh, you know, Muslims have a different dharma. So in that sense, to be religion in terms of a tradition. And I, and when I would hear maybe stri dharma, I asked one time, like, oh, what is stri dharma? And they said, oh, that's the dharma of women, right? So they didn't explain the dharma part so much as like the stri part. So dharma is not something that these women are using in their everyday lives, although I want to suggest that it's still shaping what they do and how they understand themselves. So I am trying to develop dharma here as a more analytical concept. And what I think is valuable about it is the ways in which we can look to this kind of social order, but think about the value of those social practices because of the ways that they are inevitably and intrinsically linked to those ontological notions. So I think, I think yes. Yeah, I know the ontological. I just use it as dharma throughout the book because I don't want to try to say like, here's exactly how I'm using it in this one way. The very expansiveness of the category is what I think is so valuable. Yeah, it's multivalent. And although, um, 
some feel that it's a multivalent one real nevertheless it's not as if all of these spokes don't have a, a certain sense or they don't connect in a certain way and so 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 i think i think the ontological resonance that you um that you're arguing for that you're that you're observing even i think that's um you know that's um how do I say it? that's mirror parallels in the very etymology of Dharma, right? Because it's related to Ruta. This the, the, there is a sense that to, to, you're invoking the sacred when you use a term, even if it means what, even if you're referring to your mundane Dharma. And even in English, we have this bizarre sense of like you do your duty, and you know, you all of a sudden it's like okay, right? There's something greater at stake there. That's right. That's right. That's, right. that's exactly what I think is powerful about Dharma, and then also. You thinking about dharma, one of the other things I want to do in the book is think about dharma as a way of thinking about religion, right? And to think about actually like very complicated and the very capacious nature of dharma as it links the everyday to the ontological, to the the cosmic. Um, that that's the way that we could actually think about what is religion when it's used as the term religion in other contexts, right? In an Euro-American classroom, for example, to think about it as being this much more capacious thing that has these resonances. Um, beyond just the everyday. And I think part of the reason that people are talking about dharma is it's so, it's not to be remarked upon, right? Um, I'm not sure people are sitting down saying like, well, here is your dharma, what you have to do. And yet people are learning all day, every day, what is their dharma? But it doesn't have to be, it's so indirect and it's so in, deeply embedded in all of these everyday practices that you don't have to set it apart and not name it and mark it as dharma because it's already there. Well, it's, 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 um, uh, it, fish don't refer to water and exactly exactly that's exactly right yeah yeah and and it's so it's so um it's so compelling a category that of course there are those who would think of uh religions which come from ancient india as dharma traditions the dharma traditions um but you're taking it a step further so maybe illumine for us how this category might be used um for traditions beyond uh the dharma traditions yeah so one of the things that I think about, and I talk about this in the conclusion of my book, about how I want people who are not scholars of Hinduism or scholars of um, South Asian traditions to think about it. Um, uh, you know, one is I'm interested in social scientists who would be reading this book who engage with religion, um, but have not necessarily think about religion as, as recognizable, right? Religion happens in ritual spaces. Um, and a lot of scholars who write wonderful things about class, often when religion shows up in discussions of class, it gets reduced to its function for capital, right? So I want to think more expensively about that. But the example I use, and this is what I use for my students here, well, I should say that. I think Dharma is so helpful as a pedagogical concept. Um, I think thinking about an expansive definition of religion is not necessarily going to be that valuable for my colleagues um, in other religious traditions who are in religious studies, because my experience is they already have pretty capacious definitions of religion. <laughs> um, and often they can find cognates in whatever traditions they work in, right? So they don't necessarily need that at all, although I think it could be a helpful way to have conversations about where there are similarities or differences in these concepts. Um, I think it's really valuable as a pedagogical tool, um, as an analytical tool, I should say, for my students. Because in the in my book, I guess I do define dharma, and I define dharma quite simply as that which holds the world together, right? Drawing on the, the Sanskrit root of three, right? The hold to maintain. And to say, we should think about karma as that which holds the world together. And I use that for my students to say, this is a way that we can also think about what is religion. It's that which holds the world together. 
Now, that can happen at a really macroscopic level or a really macroscopic level. The way I like to use it pedagogically is to suggest to my students uh, to use that as an analytical lens to think especially about mundane practices. So I think about this less in my religion classes than I, uh, I teach a course on um, women, religion, and ethnography. And I use it as an ethnography class to say, you're going to go have these conversations with your mother, your grandmother, your aunt, with someone, um, and they may or may not be about what you think of as explicitly or recognizably religious. But how can we use this lens of dharma as a lens of religion to think differently about what people, what is happening, what you experience, what women talk about? And I often use the example of like, you know, a story that your mother tells over and over and over again. And you find it mostly annoying, especially because that's not really how it happens, right? Um, we can ask this question of like, what is your mother doing when she tells that story? What world is she holding together? Whose world? And in what ways is she holding the world together? How does the food that she cooks, you come home every time and she makes the same meal, or you have a special meal that your family does, what's happening in that practice that's holding the world together? And that might just be the world of your family, right? Or feels like your family. But I think in that way, it's really helpful as an analytical framework to ask and to help students make that analytical shift to seeing then and thinking about what you were suggesting, the real weight of practices um, in the mundane. So that's where I think Dharma could actually be really helpful in a classroom that would not be limited just to Hinduism, but thinking about Dharma and that idea of what holds the world together as a definition of religion that we could give to students to ask and ask and answer an analytical question about religion. Fascinating. Uh, what had come to mind um, uh, in, in in what you're arguing is um, this novel. Now, perhaps I should have more coffee in my cup. What's a novel? Oh, Rabindranath up to Gore's um, The Home in the World, which is a fascinating um, hint, a uh, nod to the idea that, yes, they can colonize the world of men in the outer life, but women were saris in transmit culture and cook delicious Indian food. <laughs> and so this idea that really there is um, a dharma in the domain of women or or, 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 or that um, the relationship to dharmas, um, you know, in some ways even more intimate and, and foundational in the work of women. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. Um, it doesn't have to be, right? But this is often what I'm encouraging um, especially my students to do, especially if they're thinking about as a woman, because it's so mundane and it's so taken for granted. Yeah, it's doing such incredible work. And I found it to be really powerful because then students think about it, they're like, oh my gosh, I just thought that was annoying. But now I think like, I realized how much work she's doing. So I'm always trying to set them up with a new appreciation of their mothers um, with this term. But I think that's one way that we can think about, uh, and for students, I think also for students, it's a way of getting past this idea, which I think many of us who are studying religion are trying to do in the first step if we're not, if our audience is not already committed to this, but it, it, it's an easy way of getting away from an idea that religion is what you believe, right? This is what you have to do the first day of an intro of Hinduism <laughs> to say, and maybe not just intro of Hinduism, but certainly for me, intro of Hinduism to say, you know, this is not a tradition that's about what you believe, it's about who you are and what you do, which actually I think is true for all religious traditions, of course. Um, but it's a way that I can get away from that understanding of religion for my students to get past, especially a Christian idea that that's what religion is. Um, so I think drawing out that cognate also in other religious traditions is really helpful for thinking about where does this start to get students to think beyond that. It's about what you believe. I love the fact that you mention your students so often and that that teaching consciousness so infuses your research and your voice as an author. It, it's taking me some, to, some time to realize that, you know, Fortunately or unfortunately, I have many hats to wear, whether it's podcasting or research or you name it, apparently, running retreats, you name it. Um, but really, 
uh, more and more realizing that, you know, they're all in the head of, of teacher and even the sort of life guidance, co- coaching, counseling work, it's you're just teaching someone about themselves or the world or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I love that. And I, you know, part of why I really resonate with the ebooks network is it's mandate of, of, of public education. Like we're here, we're keeping it as accessible as we can so that yeah. we can communicate ideas in a palatable way. And if people want the nitty gritty, I'm sure they'll go right now and buy middle-class Dharma. Um, uh, but, but I really love the frame of teaching and, and really, and truly this is uh, public education on my mind is always a pun for, on the podcast. Cause it's not about educating the public. It's my own education in public, right, right. uh, my, my, my free education from the, from, from the authors. Um, um, how, what is the relationship between, uh, how does cast fit into this conversation? What is the relationship between cast and class? It is a great question and an incredibly complicated question. And one that I, I try to be honest about in the book too, that's actually kind of hard for me to get at because one of the ways in which, um, one of the discourses about class and caste in um, contemporary India, in my experience, especially in the middle classes and above, right, is this argument that caste doesn't matter. Um, and I think that's an idea that caste shouldn't matter um, it feels to me in many, in some ways, similar to discourses in the United States about race doesn't matter, right? Something like I don't see race as the race doesn't still exist. But um, I think there's an increasingly common discourse that caste doesn't matter or shouldn't matter among the middle classes and up. And that discourse circulated in the neighborhood where I worked. And I worked in a neighborhood of um, what I call the emerging middle classes. Um, so these are families, many of whom migrated from rural areas to urban areas, and it's just in this first, this is the generation, the first generation that they're calling themselves middle class. They're just figuring out what that means for themselves. But already this discourse that caste doesn't matter um, is starting to circulate. Um, so I, I, say some, I struggled to understand the relationship between caste and class because people were not as explicit about it with me, right? I had a friend who was concurrently doing research in the village. And we shared our writing as we were going along and things that I named as class, she was like, that's cat. But I didn't learn how to read cast very well, quite honestly, um, because of the ways in which it is trying to be obscured in a middle-class context. Um, so I think that's, but it also then obscures the ways in which class is used to continue cast practices, right? It's, um, I'm drawing on other people's work. Um, I, I try to show throughout the book that uh, middle-classness serves upper caste, I think, almost there's a very strong correlation, let me put it that way, um, to be upper classes, to be upper caste. Um, and I'm not sure how much becoming middle class, especially in the community with whom I'm working, gets past that. Because these are communities, again, they're new to the city. They are almost entirely OBC uh, or SC, mostly OBC. These are lower caste communities. Um, I mean, lower here is a legal way. This is historically marginalized um, caste communities. Um, and there are ways in which they couldn't break through, even though they had done the right kind of middle class things. The example I use in the book is my host brother, um, who got a degree in graphic design from a local college, but could not get a job in the tech sector. And I think part of it is that, that which I asked him about it, he told me that it was because Udaipur um, is not a tech hub, which is true. Um, but I think that there are other things at play here. Um, part of it is class, but I think it has to do with a lot of these elements of capital, right? He has a degree from a local university. Uh, he doesn't speak English. Um, and I think by virtue of his new, uh, you know, his newly urbanized and his also his caste status, 
Um, he doesn't have access to the kind of networks that would otherwise ensure his ability to kind of achieve the Indian dream through these middle class practices. Um, so I think there's a there's a complicated way in which people are saying more and more and more caste doesn't matter, and yet caste continues to matter in incredibly relevant, important, and critical ways, although it's becoming more and more vast. What was your research process like? Um, well, I... Uh, I kind of ended up in the neighborhood where I worked kind of on accident. I had originally, um, in the book I call it fortuitous failure. I had originally um, intended to work with others. Others call that destiny. <laughs> <laughs> I, it felt so much like failure at the time. I couldn't get past that. Um, I had originally, I did initial um, preliminary uh, research um, with women who work in Sadna, which is a women's cooperative that was founded by um, Seva Mandir. Um, so these are women who work in the factory that produces, say, for example, um, cortos. You then send out to women's group and they had accents and then they get sold for incredible amounts of money to white women who come to visit Uday for. There's another project to be done there about the women producing clothing that they don't wear themselves for all kinds of reasons. But um, when I went then to actually start the field work, the, um, I had met women and they said, yeah, you know, uh, they were kind of the demographic that I was looking for, women who were newly urbanized, who were... Um, the first women in their families, and many of these women were daughters-in-law who had moved to the city um, post-marriage, um, who were the first women to work outside of their home in non-agricultural context. And they all said, yeah, you can come back and we'll talk to you. And then when I started field work, they, the, the director asked me to wait six weeks because they were running behind and she didn't want me to, to further delay. And then I was like, well, what am I going to do? I can't just sit here for six weeks. And you know, now my language skills and my ethnographic um, confidence or obstinance it might be now i would just go to women and be like i'm gonna meet you here afterwards can i come to your house <laughs> right now i would have pursued that in a different way at the time i didn't have that um and so i ended up going to um the the urban block office of seba mandir and uh, the so the the office that worked with women's groups in the city and it was interesting to me because i was trying to describe this demographic that i could imagine of these kind of upper level women but i didn't have the language for it i didn't i didn't know what people themselves said so I didn't really know how to describe it, quite honestly. Um, and so she suggested a couple of different places for me to go. And and um, I, I went to a couple of different potential field sites and they weren't quite right. But I wasn't, I didn't know how to articulate the fact that they weren't right. And then, you know, so I was like, I'm going back to her office. And I think she must have been so annoyed with me. <laughs> like, just get out of my office. This is not my job. I don't know what you want. You don't know what you want. I can't help you. And so finally, she just said, like, go get Usha, this woman who worked there. And she said, you're going to go home with Usha tonight. Like, and then just get out of my office. Um, and so I went home with Usha that night and she took me to her home and it was in this neighborhood of Kulam that became my field site. And even in that first night, I knew like, oh, this is the place. Um, because I could tell that these were, it was the kind of community that I was looking for, people who had come from rural areas, but were owning their own homes, talking about their daughter's education, these kinds of things. Um, and so they just said, yeah, keep coming back. And it was only a mile from where I was living at the time. So I just started going back regularly and just spending time. Um, and people were so generous and kind. And then women came to understand that I was to, to pay attention to their religious practices. So they started inviting me to learn things. Uh, and then eventually um, they told me that there was a neighbor uh, down the street who was had a room that was open enough to rent. So I asked if I could, so I moved in there and then I just lived in the neighborhood. And it was, yeah, I just kind of became a neighbor myself and spent time. Um, and then again, I got the reputation for the fact that if you were going to do something religious, you should go get the, <laughs> you should go get Jen. Um, or Jenny Didi, as I was known in the neighborhood. Um, and then just kind of tried to pay attention to the rhythms of the neighborhood and the rhythms of women's, especially women's everyday lives. Um, 
for me, that was as important, right? The recognizably religious stuff I was interested in, but I, I wanted to think about how these everyday practices were religious. So I just tried to spend as much time as I could. And, you know, for the most part, that was time in the evenings, right? Um, a lot of the women in the neighborhood left the neighborhood to work outside of the home. These were women who, um, to help, you know, support the middle-class aspirations of the family. Um, or, you know, they were just at home kind of doing their own thing during the day, or and I was doing my own kind of own work. Um, so I spent just a lot of time with women in their kitchens at night where they were cooking dinner and talking with each other um, and spending time with each other to get a sense of what were their lives like and thinking about how that would be different um, through explicit conversation, but also just recognizing the ways they live different lifestyles than their daughters and their granddaughters, et cetera. Love C. Um, were there, uh, were there, was there particular set of questions that you formally or informally had in mind? Was it more organic? Was it more experiential? Uh, what did you do? Formal interviews? What was that like? Yeah. So, you know, and I went, I told them, I tried to explain this thing of like, oh, I'm here to see what, again, I knew I didn't know how to talk about class um, in indigenous terms. And I also didn't really know how women would talk about religion. So I just kept saying, like, I'm interested in what happens when you move from the village to the city. What kind of changes come? And I would give an example, like, oh, some festivals that you celebrate in the village, maybe you don't celebrate them in the city, or now you celebrate new festivals in the city. So I was giving examples of that for them to think about religion. Um, and so sometimes then that would be a conversation that would spark things, right? And the book is organized around, um, with the exception of the last chapter, is organized around explicit religious practices. Weddings, I do um, a uh, animal rut um, called the Sultan. No, Rodri. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's kind of a show. So they're all organized around that. Um, but I would say that in some cases, these were kind of formal. I mean, they were informal interviews also in the sense that there was somebody who was going to host something that I would go and have this conversation with them. But I just got into the habit of anywhere I went, I just took my recorder and turned it on. You know, anytime I met someone, I explained what I was doing. I kind of did my IRB. <laughs> I'm not sure how much they understood that, but then I just always had my recorder and I got to the point where, you know, people just knew that it was going to be there because I didn't know it was going to matter. And it turned out that there was many conversations kind of that happened uh, without any kind of official prompting that was valuable for me thinking about women's you know, lives and their religious lives than these kinds of formal things. So it was a little bit of a mix of that. It was mostly just hanging out, trying to see what people did and always recording it and trying to think about it because everything counts. Everything counts. What, if anything, surprised you about this research? Surprised me? Um, well, I'm not, it's a good question, and I'm not sure I have an immediate answer about what well, just surprising to me. I guess what I could say was... Remarkable, perhaps. Yeah, just I was just so impressed with these women, period. I mean, they just... the um, I'm just so, <laughs> so impressed at how much work they're getting done, quite honestly. Um, and, you know, insofar as I ended up understanding the incredible work that they were doing, this dharmic work, right, holding the world together, generating dharma, that they're doing that on top of all of the actual work that they're doing. And then they're doing it while they're also having a really good time. Um, I got really lucky to work in a demographic of women who are, I mean, by virtue, I think, of both their class and caste status, um, there's a lot of flexibility in their own lives and a lot of mobility and I just ended up with a lot of really sassy women. I had a I have a colleague who works with Brahmin women, and she said to me one time, she said, your women are a lot sassier than mine. You're, you're a lot sassier with your women than I am with mine. I was like, I'm, my women are just really sad. So I just was so impressed at the way the women, the world and the community that they built for themselves in this neighborhood over the course of you know this generation and the work that they did to maintain it and the ways in which they welcomed me into it. They're just 
really impressive. So I don't know if that's about a surprise, but it's something I keep coming back to in the work. I'm not sure I appreciated it as much until I was writing it up and realizing like in this argument for the work that they're doing for not just themselves, but their families and the neighborhood, make an argument for the neighborhood as the space of Dharma, the middle-class neighborhood as a Dharmic space. And that that's the community with whom you decide dynamic norms in an urban neighborhood. They're doing a lot of work to create that out of nothing. I mean, the, the neighborhood where I worked was, I mean, was basically a slum 30 years ago. And now it's a middle-class neighborhood, right? What they would call the middle-class neighborhood. It's an incredible amount of work that they've done. How typical um, is this sort of social mobility? So I think in the neighborhood where I worked, it's pretty typical um, for this kind of where you begin that it started, again, that it, it was kind of, it wasn't actually, a, um, I mean, it was basically a slum 30 to 40 years ago. It's still called the Kachibasti, which is usually referred to slum areas. And now people go pack a home. They are, every time I go back, my host family has something new, right? Um, first it was the car and now they have a second car and now they're doing some renovations in the house, right? So they're always adding on that um, this kind of mobility becomes quite literal in a sense that every time I go back also, people are adding, well, you know, a third story to the house. Um, either for the family or so that you can all move up a floor, you can rent out the floor of the rooms on the ground floor to help pay for the other elements of mobility with education, um, jobs, et cetera. I think it's pretty typical. What I'm also recognizing too are where the limits of that, right? Um, you're going to have to, you're going to have to learn English. You're going to have to make a certain amount of money. You're going to have to get a certain kind of education. You're going to have to get access to other kinds of networks to break out of the particular neighborhood. Um, so it's not a continual. I think the mobility that's happening between, um, say, the oldest generation and the neighborhood where I work, um, those gaps are not quite as big, right? The jumps are not as big now in these later generations. But I think this is very typical. I think it's what it looks like in most and a lot of neighborhoods in Udaipur. Um, and I think a lot of neighborhoods throughout India, this is the kind of first step when you're moving into this kind of middle classness. Is this work that you hope to continue? Uh, I do, but I'm, you know, the next project that I'm working on, it takes up kind of similar questions, but in a different direction. And because the other thing that was really lovely about my neighbor, the neighborhood where I worked is that, it, um, you know, on one end, it, you know, when you come into the neighborhood from the north, there's a Hindu temple and there are a lot of Hindu families who come in from the south. There's a mosque. It's mostly Muslim families. And right where I lived is a kind of combination of Muslims and, and Hindus. And so one of the things that I realized in this work and every day is seeing that Muslims themselves are going through similar kinds of upward mobility um, socioeconomically. Um, and I'm interested in the question of how that may or may not be similar in religious terms, especially for young women. Because um, there are some ways in which this, this Muslim mobility is similar and some ways in which it's distinct. So for example, um, my experience has been that the, more, uh, the, the greater your class mobility for Hindu women, the less likely they are to veil, for example. Um, that a sign of your middle class is, is that you stop veiling, right? You think of veiling as something that some um, people do in the village, for example. Um, my experience with Muslims has been that the more middle class you become, the more likely you are to veil. Um, I think that's in relationship to greater access to both secular and religious education. And I think also in the contemporary world, that's about shifting to where the kind of Muslim norm is. And so your fashion norms are not necessarily your Hindu neighbors, right? But it might be Muslims elsewhere in the world. Um, so I'm still interested in this question about class mobility. I'm interested in not only how that's shaping Muslim families, but I'm really interested in the question of how that's reshaping the relationships between women in communities like the one where I worked. Um, if the oldest generation of, well, I know that the oldest generation of women in this neighborhood became close to one another because they were working in the shared project of trying to build a middle-class neighborhood. 
So the Muslim and Hindu women know each other and became friends, you know, out on the streets and doing this kind of work. But their daughters are literally not on the streets in the same way because they're going to college and they're staying inside to study. I mean, they're just literally not physically meeting each other in the neighborhood in the same way. Um, but I think they might be meeting each other in other ways outside of the neighborhood. So I'm interested in how this kind of upward class mobility has shaped and is continuing to shape and it may in some cases maybe reshaping the relationships that women have with one another, um, especially insofar as the everyday practices of women, I think are also really critical to peace and peacemaking in places like these neighborhoods. Um, so that's the next project that I'm interested in is thinking about taking kind of similar questions, but thinking about it both in Muslim communities and how that shapes the kind of interreligious relationships of families and neighborhoods like this. Well, whenever you, um, whenever you complete that project, I know a guy who runs a podcast. Um, yeah, yeah. Strange, strange fellow. Um, uh, was there anything else about this book you would like to touch on or you hope to be touch on? Um, no, nothing kind of explicit that's coming to my mind. Um, I think in self- That's I'll be, a good sign. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how it lands, you know? my I have kind of disparate audiences for thinking about who I think will engage with it, both from scholars who are working on Dharma, you know, think about the like textualist scholars. I'll be interested to see what they think about my use of Dharma. But then I'm also interested in people who, you know, social scientists working in South Asia, but also other scholars outside of that who are thinking about how the, thinking about Dharma um, either for their own work or for their own teaching. I'll be interested to see where it lands. I will say that I, my brother and sister-in-law were here visiting and I gave my brother a copy of the book and now he's texting me every day and I was like, no, you're reading the book too closely. <laughs> I'm not prepared to, to answer all of these questions. Um, but I'm going to be interested to see where it lands and what kind of conversations it could hopefully generate. Fascinating. Perhaps uh, the podcast will facilitate in um, it reaching various audiences thanks to New Books Network. Um, well, that sounds great. Um we'll close for today. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. For those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Jennifer uh, uh, Ortegren. Ortegren. Ortegren, um, who is Associate Professor at Mid Middlebury College on her brand new publication, Middle Class Dharma, Women Aspiration and the Making of Contemporary Hinduism. Until next time, keep well, keep safe, keep listening, and keep contemplating um, you know, the everyday lives of women and their impact on both mundane and sacred spheres. Take care.